This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Spumelele Zondi. Hello, welcome to the program. You can find us on 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band. That's if you are in Southern Africa. You can also find us on our web address. That's www.channelafrica.co.za www.channelafrica.co.za This hour, I'm with Joala Metulo, with Anna Matabula and Mosibudi Makura. The top stories. Cuban presidents who stepped down this week. The passing of Winnie Madigizela Mandela puts the legacy of the anti-apartheid struggle in the dark. In economics, Anglo Gold Ashanti CEO Srinivasan Vakandakrishanan has resigned after 18 years in the company. And in sports, the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee to pay athletes who, sh- who shun air to the Commonwealth Games handsomely. And the news with Jordan Atula. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. French filmmaker Pascal Lamanche says she stands by her approach to the late South African struggle icon, Winnie Matigizela Mandela's documentary that revolves around the murder of Storm PC Bay. However, Lamanche has apologized to former Safety and Security Minister Sidney Mufamadi for not getting his side of the story regarding his alleged attempts to have the murder case reopened. Mufamadi says the documentary titled Winnie is one-sided. Lamanche says a lot of important information was disclosed in the documentary to tell the truth that had never been told before. Is this film a credible film? Is it an important story to to bring out in South Africa today? Is it something that people need to answer for, the film, or discredit me? But to go and investigate for your own satisfactions whether this important film that gives you all kinds of insights into all sorts of ways in which Winnie Mandela was demonized, criminalized, etc. Most of the obituaries internationally that have come out and they all say oh well she was sort of loved by her people but she she dealt murder in kidnapping and all of these sorts of things so the film is the first offering to begin to counter that narrative Still in South Africa, law enforcement agencies have raided the Gupta's Saxonwald compound in Johannesburg as part of moves to seize assets from the implicated from those implicated in the Frieda Dairy Farm case. The National Prosecuting Authority says it obtained a restraint order at the Bloemfontein High Court last week in the Free State Province, amounting to more than 20 million US dollars against the assets of several individuals and entities implicated in theft, fraud, and money laundering. The assets forming part of the order include property, aircraft, vehicles and bank accounts belonging to entities including Oak Bay Investments and Sahara Computers, Nozindombi Mia reports. 
The lawyer that is representing the Gupta family was not allowing them to gain access into the property up until there was some national intervention that was put in place to ensure that eventually the SARS officials as well as the asset forfeiture unit officials were able to access the property. We have some unconfirmed reports that both officials from SARS and the asset forfeiture unit are here to attach some of the assets that belongs here to the Gupta compound as well as documents that are critical in their investigation of the Gupta family. The Democratic Republic of Congo's Independent National Electoral Commission has reassured the Congolese that the upcoming elections will run smoothly. There have been reservations on the use of voting machines the commission has brought in. Jean-Noël Bamwezi reports from Kinshasa. The voting machine has really divided the people here in the Democratic Republic of Congo, including political actors, civil society members and even people on the streets. The machines are being supplied by a South Korean company, but indeed, the embassy of South Korea here in Kinshasa has said the South Korean government has instructed the company to stop supplying those machines as they create a misunderstanding among Congolese. Some political parties from the opposition have come together in a coalition and rejected the use of the machines. Most of the civil society organizations have rejected them as well. The Norwegian Refugee Council says the estimated amount of 530 million US dollars raised by international donors for the Democratic Republic of Congo is disappointing. The NRC hoped the donors meeting in Geneva, Switzerland over the weekend would step up to the 1.7 billion dollar target for 2018. The organization maintains that without enough funding, aid agencies simply cannot reach the people who need the assistance the most. The Norwegian Refugee Council advocacy advisor in the DRC, Kimberly Bennett. We're disappointed because that is less than a third of the total amount required to assist the 13 million people who are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. The amount that was raised on Friday amounts to roughly $50 per person targeted for assistance. And that just isn't enough, especially when we look at the fact that we are now almost into the month of May. And there are seven months of the year to go where people will need food, shelter, sanitation, and this is the amount that's raised. It's just not enough. And finally, a meeting of the International Chemical Weapons Watchdog has seen the West and Russia clash over the Syrian government's alleged use of prohibited weapons. The U.S. envoy to the OPCW is reported to have said that Russia may have tampered with the site of the recent suspected gas attack in Syria. Moscow says other members are blocking attempts to create a new investigative mechanism. The BBC's Anna Holligan has the details. They're on a fact-finding mission, so they were supposed to be deployed to gather the scientific evidence required. So things like biomedical samples from autopsies, from survivors, witness testimonies, environmental samples. And that's why this matters so much, because the longer it goes before they're allowed access, the less chance they have of getting that critical evidence, the scientific stuff that will come from, for example, soil samples, if there are canisters lying around. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
Thank you very much, Olane. It is 17.07 Central African time. Let's start in Cuba, where this week Raul Castro will stand down as a president. At 86, he has governed the country for over a decade, taking over from his brother, the late Fidel Castro. Between them, the Castro brothers have spent almost 60 uninterrupted years in power on the communist-run island, but now a non-Castro is about to take the helm for the first time since 1959. The cult of personality in Cuba is strong, with some revolutionary leaders almost hero-worshipped. However, the next generation of leaders lack the same inspirational backstories as the Castros, and some Cubans are already turning to an unlikely place on the largely atheist island. The evangelical church the BBC's Will Grant is in Havana and sends this report. It is standing room only at Sunday service in Trinidad, a picturesque colonial town in central Cuba in its small Baptist community. Small but growing, says their pastor Enoch Carvajal. The Christian community tries to integrate new people and we've done that. Not only us, but other evangelical missions here have done so too. We go out onto the streets to share our faith with the people in the street and in their homes and the vast majority are at least open to hearing our message. Enoch has been a Baptist pastor for 21 years. He vividly remembers the height of the Cold War, a time of bitter confrontation between the church and the state in Cuba, when many chose to practice their religion behind closed doors. I lived through this experience before 1990, throughout the years of my student life, from preschool to 12th grade. I still have the report cards where the teachers put black marks against my name. They wrote, he's a Baptist, he's religious, he has the makings of a good young student, but there are great holes in his ideology, he's a Christian, etc., etc. It was all done with the intention of removing the figure of Jesus Christ from the center of my life, to replace him with the personality and the ideals of Fidel Castro. Although the relationship has undoubtedly improved since then, that tension remains. The island's education system continues to emphasize many of the same socialist teachings it has since the revolution took power in 1959. But here, in the Baptist community in Trinidad, an equally rigorous process of religious instruction is going on, both at home and in Bible study classes, like the ones taking place around the building. There's a 1950s Chevy uh, under cover here and walking around what is essentially a house, although converted into a church, each of the rooms that would have been living quarters originally are now being used for catechism classes. I'm just going to go into one. As the youngest children chanted Bible passages, the class for teenagers was holding a discussion on false prophets and the dangers of men professing to be God. The name Castro wasn't mentioned, but the inference seemed self-evident. After class, I caught up with two of the congregation's young people, Lionel and Almi. As it says in the Old Testament, cursed is the man who trusts in man. It's not that we hate man, we love mankind. But we know not to put man above all else. No, no, not even your family. Here they did that with Lenin and Marx. 
I can't love people who mean nothing to us, who we've never known in our lives. They are totally opposite teachings. This is a nation that was built completely far from God. They put people above all else and not God above everything. So it's very contradictory what they told us in school and what we learned in church. Despite the conflicting messages, there are some among the evangelical community in Cuba who combine the two opposing belief systems, who attend church and identify with the revolution. Nowadays, they accept believers into the communist youth and into the party. In the old days, we were not accepted. Dolores Tellez is one such person. Originally from a poor background in Santiago on the eastern tip of the island, today she is a semi-retired schoolteacher and credits the socialist government for her education. Dolores sees no inherent contradiction in defining herself both as revolutionary and evangelical. I'm a revolutionary. For what reason? Because in those days we were poor and it was the revolution that gave me the opportunity to study. Before the revolution, studying involved a lot of costs. I remember parents of friends of mine when I was a little girl, whose mother had to stay up to three or four in the morning, washing and ironing clothes to make enough money to send her children to school. These are the last days of the generation of original revolutionaries. In late 2016, hundreds of thousands of mourners lined the roads from one end of Cuba to the other to pay their respects to the father of the revolution, Fidel Castro. Today, further upheaval on the island beckons. In the post-Castro Cuba, evangelical and non-traditional churches may find they have a little more room to operate in, but the more they grow, the more they run the risk of clashing with the authorities once again. The report was done by the BBC's World Grant. A video clip in which South Africa's late struggle icon Winima Digizela Mandela partly discusses media smear campaigns launched against her during apartheid and has sparked fierce conversations. In a recently broadcast documentary titled Winnie, Vic McPherson, former director of an operative called Strategic Communications, also known as Stratcom, also talks about how an operation was set up by the apartheid government to, among other things, launch smear campaigns against anti-apartheid fighters using various media platforms and journalists and how Madigizela Mandela was one of the main targets. McPherson says he had 40 journalists working directly or indirectly for him to carry out the campaigns. Political analyst Somatota Figeni says the revelations should not be cast in stone but only guide national dialogue. I do think that it's an important addition to our national conversation but it is not long nor comprehensive enough to allow for full picture and therefore it has done what it ought to do to trigger a national conversation a reflection on our past and present, but it would need a lot more for reflection. And some people are saying perhaps another TRC 
or Truth and Reconciliation Commission is needed for us to know what happened, when and how, so that our revision of history is an informed one rather than a reactive one. Now, looking at Stratcom's historical record, how believable are these allegations that have been made against these journalists? Well, I wouldn't say they are believable because each one of the Stratcom members, upon reflection, having the new facts that have been revealed, some of them will lie, some of them will also reveal the truth. But the one danger that may occur is that the Stratcom disinformation campaign may outlive its lifespan by still stoking new debates, sometimes untested evidence, and in some instances simply allusions. Hence it is important for a thorough investigation of any of the allegations made. Yeah, uh, SANEF has come out uh, really calling for cool heads during this time, um, uh, you know, fearing that uh, uh, further arguing um, this uh, puts journalists at risk of physical harm and also having their credibility unnecessarily questioned. Is there grounds uh, for questioning the credibility of uh, the journalists in question? Well, I wouldn't say the journalists in question. I would say it has to go more than that because you do have two classes of journalists, or even more. Some may have fallen into the trap of disinformation unknowingly. Some might have fallen into the trap of disinformation knowingly, whereas others might have fallen into the trap of disinformation because of their racial or class interest at a given time whereas others may simply have been trying to connect anecdotal evidences, not knowing what the bigger scheme was. And uh, uh, just lastly, we heard the uh, economic freedom fighters calling for those journalists, some of whom have, of course, said to be still working in the country's newsrooms, uh, to come forward and confess, asking for forgiveness. Is there another approach that they can take to to sort of deal with these allegations that have been made um, against them? Because the EFF seems to be on a a so-called witch hunt uh, for these journalists at the moment. Certainly, I do think that government or even different stakeholders may have to preempt this by presenting facts or creating a forum for such facts to be presented. Otherwise, you may have a situation where individuals are politically targeted, they are discredited, they are humiliated publicly, only to find that some years later another version and another truth comes through. In fact, the irony right now is that the Stratcom, which was meant to be dead and buried after apartheid ended, seemed to be more lethal in its death than when it was still there. In a statement released on Friday, the ANC Women's League, Dr. Figeni, um, says that South African media in general, with the exception of a few media houses, is still stuck in what they've called an apartheid era of being uh, used to assassinate characters of women, particularly black women who are actively participating in politics. What is your view on that? I do think that uh, media is not alone in that space. Any patriarchal society will hold women into a different standard from that of men. So it should not come as a surprise because that's the social arrangement and perceptions 
which are dominant in a patriarchal society. However, each one of the sectors, whether it's a workplace or it's media, they ought to work on programs to conscientize themselves on how best to be aware and conscious of some of these things, some of which are subtle, some are subconscious, and some are institutional. Political analyst Soma Dota Figeni speaking to Zikona Miso. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Thank you very much for staying with Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. Find us on Twitter. It is Channel Africa One. Police last Friday fired rubber bullets at protesters in Swaziland while they marched against the worsening living conditions and the cost of celebrations to mark the 50th anniversary of the absolute monarchy. More than 2,000 people took to the streets to take part in a rare demonstration organized by Trade Union Congress of Swaziland to Koswa in the administrative capital Mbabane. More from Tukoswa's second deputy secretary general, Muzim Shanga. The protest action was uh, called to raise quite a number of issues that are affecting our services um, at this time when our leaders have decided to host uh, a big celebration of the um, 50th anniversary of the independence and the 50th um, celebration of the King's birthday. We, as workers, we feel that um, there are quite a number of issues. That we've raised about 16 concerns. Um, why we, we think that uh, our government is not uh, taking into consideration the, the difficulties under which services live. Now, why is it that the police fired at the protesters, Muzi? Um, we are told that um, the, the protesters who were shot at, were, um, according to the police, were not following the route that we had agreed on. Unfortunately, we were leading we were at the front and when we when we got back we found that uh, there was no clear explanation why they were shot at now we hardly see protests in swaziland uh, how significant was this past friday's one it's just that the people in swaziland are now they've now reached a point where they think that uh, uh, being quiet you know it doesn't help them we as, as to course we've been trying to you know we were giving social dialogue a chance but it seems uh, it's not working, so that's why we have decided now that we are going to have protest action every month. In end of May, we are going to have another one. End of June, we are going to have another one. In September, we plan to shut down, uh, you know, not to work for a whole week in the first week of September, so that we show government that we are serious about 
these issues. That is Tukoswa's second Deputy Secretary General, Muzim Hlanga, on the line from Mbabane in Swaziland. He was in conversation with Zekona Misole. Meanwhile, political risk advisory firm EXX Africa says there is a mounting evidence that Zambia has miscalculated its total debt. The firm says the country's external debt could be as high as 15.6 billion US dollars, while local debt seems almost incalculable given the opacity in lending to state-owned entities from local banks. EXX Africa Director Robert Besselink explains. The initial rumors, in fact, came from a number of uh, construction companies and banks operating in Zambia, which which had heard rumors of uh, undisclosed debt. Uh, And we flagged this to our clients last year. And in December, we received a number of documents from uh, our sources within Zambia's central bank and the finance ministry, who essentially uh, are rather concerned with the situation at the moment, uh, that simply the balance of payments are not adding up, uh, and that Zambia has uh, maybe not hidden, but at least is unaware of its current debt situation. In other words, um, over the past seven or eight years or so, the government has racked up such a large amount of debt from different corners, whether it's multilateral or concessional syndicated or Chinese or even local borrowing, uh, that simply there is no clear uh, final account anymore of what Zambia owes. Now the government has stuck to the most recently published figures, Robert, uh, vehemently denying that it has concealed any debt. How do you respond to this? Yes, but the finance ministry has undergone a political shift over the past few months. Mr. Felix Mutati was the previous finance minister. And he essentially was demoted because he was trying to curb government lending. And he was also not kept aware of what other ministries were borrowing. The most recent appointment of finance minister, uh, Ms. Margaret Manakatwe, uh, has again assured investors that Zambia's foreign debt stands at $8.7 billion at the end of March. However, the government is not giving a final account of what is owed in terms of state, state contracts uh, in terms of arrears, uh, is not giving a final account of the recent spike in local borrowing. And there are still a number of uh, Chinese debts which are not, uh, not, not, not fully accounted for. It seems at the moment that the finance ministry uh, does not have a, a, the final say either on uh, which department is borrowing and how it should be repaid. Now, these reports have added to the international markets, Jitters, Robert. How does Zambia emerge out of this? Do you think renegotiating its debt mountain is the solution? The good news is that Zambia is already saying they want to restructure the debts with China, and they are keen to reschedule their euro bonds. Obviously, whether China and euro bond investors will agree to that is a different story. The other good news is that the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, continues to try and engage Zambia on a $1.3 billion credit facility. However, Zambia would have to make some serious restructural uh, reforms and to cut its spending levels and improve their transparency. That, of course, then becomes a political question. So it's essentially up to Zambia at the moment to show new commitment to try and sort out the situation. Uh, And there are a number of proposals on the table. And it really will, the next few weeks and months will really show to what, uh, to what level the Zambian government is committed. What are your projections uh, telling you, Robert, uh, in terms of uh, Zambia's economic forecast growth in 2018? Will it accelerate or will it remain stagnant? Well, 
initially the uh, the Treasury in Zambia had forecast about five percent economic growth in 2018 um, however the finance ministry has now come out uh, a week or two ago saying that the economy is now only expected to grow by about four percent this year which is much closer to where it was uh, in 2017 at 4.1%. And this is especially because of these market jitters. Uh, the, the government has not been able to calm soothe investor fears over potential undisclosed debt. Uh, and as long as that problem remains, this will remain a drag on Zambia's economic outlook. Robert Besseling is Director of Political Risk Advisory Firm EXX Africa on the line from London in the United Kingdom and he was talking to Kumbero Mujarere. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and a party. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. It's now time for your news headlines. Yes, Thank you, Spumalele. Making headlines, French filmmaker Pascal Lamanche says she stands by her approach to the late South African struggle icon Winnie Matigizela Mandela's documentary that revolves around the murder of Stompy C. Bay. The Democratic Republic of Congo's Independent National Electoral Commission has reassured the Congolese that the upcoming elections will run smoothly. And finally, a meeting of the International Chemical Weapons Watchdog has seen the West and Russia clash over the Syrian government's alleged use of prohibited weapons. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you very much, Jolani. Your time is 17.30 Central African time. The Norwegian Refugee Council says it is disappointed by the outcome of the pledging conference for the Democratic Republic of Congo. International donors meeting in Geneva in Switzerland last week raised an estimated amount of 530 million US dollars to meet the needs of people targeted in the humanitarian response plan. This year, 1.7 billion is needed to address the growing humanitarian situation in the DRC. NRC advocacy advisor in the country, Kimberly Bennett, explains. We're disappointed because that is less than a third of the total amount required to assist the 13 million people who are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. The amount that was raised on Friday amounts to roughly $50 per person 
targeted for assistance. And that just isn't enough, especially when we look at the fact that we are now almost into the month of May. And there are seven months of the year to go where people will need food, shelter, sanitation. And this is the amount that's raised. It's just not enough. And let's reflect more on what this amount of funding actually means. Does it also mean that we will see aid agencies still struggling to increase the operations in the DRC, meaning that not many people will be reached effectively? Well, exactly. That's exactly why we are concerned with the little that was raised. If you look at last year, only 4.2 million out of the 8.5 million who are in need were reached last year. And that was with half of the amount required for assistance being met, half of the budget being met. So if we look at uh, the figures which have doubled for this year in terms of budget needed and the fact that we've only received a third, of course, what you're going to see is more NGOs having to shut down or having to make very you know, critical choices between what type of people they can assist, leaving out other populations. You will see less analysis in terms of the protection needs on the ground. And it will not only cause a diminution of aid, it will also cause the situation to worsen. We feel that if the budget is there, there will be enough aid agencies that could service the people within the Congolese borders, for instance, in an area like Ituri, and cause them to stay rather than flee across the border into Uganda. So these are all the consequences of not fulfilling the budget that is required for uh, humanitarian assistance in Congo. And what would you say is the reason why the money that was raised did not come close to what was anticipated or hoped for? What are the reasons? Well, it's hard to say what the reasons are, at least from a humanitarian perspective, because you would have to ask a donor as to why there wasn't enough money raised. But what I can tell you is if we do a comparison, for instance, to last the week before, where nearly two billion was raised for Yemen, and we even do a price tag comparison between crises, DR Congo last year per person received $62, whereas Syria received 305 So I'm not sure what donors are thinking because it is very clear the evidence is there that if nothing is done and if things do not improve, there are millions of lives at stake. And I think there needs to be a lot of soul searching in the donor international donor community as to how they're prioritizing crises across the globe and ensuring that there is equity across the board. Kimberly, but I understand that many countries actually increased their support despite the funding not actually um, adding up to what was hoped for. Countries actually did increase their support. Well, certain countries did. And I think this is also a second part of the problem, is that there is a reliance on maybe five or six key countries that keep giving every year and are the top five or six donors for Congo. But that's not sustainable. So there needs to be more countries brought to the table 
in order to make sure that the humanitarian response plan budget is fulfilled. We can't have all the burden placed on the five or six countries that are giving the most money or are doubling every year. It's just not fair. There needs to be more of a soliciting, perhaps more advocating and lobbying of certain countries that may not have ever given to the uh, DR Congo humanitarian crisis, and also to countries who may have diminished their funding for DR Congo. Now, Kimberly, the government of the DRC definitely maintained its stance to boycott the pledging conference, and one wonders if humanitarian agencies won't have a problem working in the DRC moving forward, given that the government has expressed that it is not satisfied with aid agencies, accusing them of exaggerating the situation in the country. Well, I mean, as far as what the government's motivations and reasoning for boycotting the conference is, I really don't know. We're a humanitarian agency, so we do not enter into those kinds of debates. And we're hoping, I mean, for I can speak for NRC. NRC has a good relationship with local authorities where we operate. And I think it's precisely because we do not get into the political banter of who gets what and whether or not numbers are exaggerated. We simply serve those who are in need. And the political debates can be saved uh, for the government and other, you know, UN agencies. We can't get into that debate right now. What we are concerned with are the 13 million people who are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection and ensuring that the aid agencies who are on the ground are properly funded so that those people can get the life-saving assistance that they need and deserve. Kimberly Bennett is the advocacy advisor of the Norwegian Refugee Council in the Democratic Republic of Congo. She was on the line from Ogoma there talking to Jane Rabotata. The month of April is International Stress Awareness Month. Throughout this annual 30-day period, which was first launched in 1992, healthcare professionals and health promotion experts joined forces to increase public awareness about both the causes and cures of stress. The World Health Organization regards stress as the health epidemic of the 21st century. Failure to deal with stress effectively can lead to serious health problems, including decreased blood pressure, susceptibility to heart disease and a decline in your immune system. More from Sheldon Fitzgerald, a transformational therapist based in Cape Town in South Africa. Stress is a very specific physiological and emotional response that we undergo whenever we're put under pressure in life. So whether it's positive pressure, so whether it's getting a new job or a promotion or getting married, or whether it's kind of feeling under attack in some way or tension in our relationship, our body has a very specific set of responses to that, and that set of responses we call stress. What's the general attitude of most people towards stress? Do they regard it as a normal part of life? What I've actually seen, which is actually quite worrying, is how many people try to medicate away stress. And when I say medicate, I don't mean necessarily using anti-anxiety medication or antidepressants, but very often people will do things like they'll go out and drink on the weekends or something to try and remove their stress or something like that rather than understanding that stress is a very healthy, very natural part of life and that there are more positive ways to deal with it. Why are people getting stressed out today and what's the effect of this on one's overall health, happiness and productivity? So probably I would say the biggest shift that's happened as we're kind of moving into the 21st century 
is that we get less and less actual free time. And what I mean by that is time by ourselves. You know, even if you're sitting at home alone, the chances are you're engaging in social media, you're chatting to friends on, you know, WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever it is, and there's very little time for us to actually kind of disconnect from the world around us and to go inward and to just completely let go and unwind. And because of that, what happens is you get an accumulation of tension inside of your body, and I think that is probably the most damaging thing that we're dealing with as a society. Now, you believe that we don't need to stress less, but we just need to stress better. Help us understand what you mean by that. All right. So one of the things that you want to know about stress is that stress is caused whenever there's a change in our life. So whether that's a positive change, like I said, or a negative change, as soon as there's change, we experience stress. So if what you're doing is you're trying to, say, get a promotion at work or you are you know, moving into a new relationship, the key to dealing with stress is to not go, well, I want to shut that stress down and I want to not feel, I don't want to be, I don't want to be present to that stress. Rather, what you want to do is you want to understand that you want to take the stress out of the other areas of your life. And the way that we do that is through patterns and routine. So if you're getting a new promotion at work or you're in a new position, then the ideal would be that keep your home life as stable and as routine as possible because that creates a nice base for you emotionally that you can then go out into the world and deal with that stress. If you're going into a new relationship, then the reverse would be true. You know, keep your work life as stable and as solid and as strong as possible and it allows for those changes that need to take place in your personal life. Is it always easy to identify the physical symptoms of stress? Unfortunately not, because what happens, like I say, for so many people is that we self-medicate, so we'll do things like drink or you know, take something for the anxiety, and so we very often suppress the natural responses. But as a general thing, there's three key things that you can look at to see whether or not your body's under stress. The first thing is digestive issues. Our digestive system is very responsive to stress. So if you're starting to find that you've got consistent digestive issues, the chances are that you're under consistent pressure, you're under consistent stress. The second one that you might find is muscular tension, which might lead to things like headaches. So if you find that your neck and shoulders are tight all the time or you've got consistent lower back pain, that may well be a sign of stress. And then the third one, which is the most worrying, is obviously cardiovascular issues. So people ending up with you know, heart failure or heart attacks. And the scary thing with that is that very often, one of my medical colleagues said to me that in something like 50% of the cases, the first sign of heart disease is death, that it can sometimes be left so late that we don't check it for ourselves that we end up actually you know, dying before we get a chance to actually deal with our stress. With the modern lifestyle that a lot of us lead today, is it possible to have a stress-free life? We're not looking at stress-free. What we want is to stress well. That means focus your stress on the areas where you want growth. So see stress as a part of growth, and in those areas you allow yourself to have a certain amount of stress, but then you always want to kind of have that 80-20 rule. You know, if you've got stress and tension in one area of your life, you need another, a bigger area where you can release and relax. So if you're under pressure at work, you want to really make sure that you take care of your home life and that you really allow yourself to release that stress somewhere else, or vice versa. You know, if you're sitting in a situation where maybe your relationship is under tension, you know, make sure that you can step away from it every now and again. Go to the gym, spend some time in nature. You need to be able to nurture yourself. You need to be able to release out the tension because it's not the stress. Stress is the environmental situation that you're in. It's the physical tension and the effect that that stress is having on your body that is actually damaging. Before I let you go, as we mark the International Stress Awareness Month, what advice do you have for our listeners out there in as far as managing stress is concerned? 
my advice is to really make sure that you do take care of yourself. If you do find that you've got any of these symptoms that I mentioned in and around stress or tension, do something about it sooner rather than later. Go for a massage, go to the gym, speak to somebody who can help you if you're carrying emotional pressure or tension, but don't leave it too late because very often what happens then is that you end up with some sort of medical complaint when it could have just been something you dealt with and nipped it in the bud if you just gave yourself a little bit of time off or a little bit of time to relax. That's Sheldon Fitzgerald, a transformational therapist in Cape Town in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lidecha. It is now time for your economics. Yes, Wesani Matebula. Good evening. Thanks, as Pumelele. Anglo Gold Ashanti CEO Srini Vasan Venkan Krishnan has rege- resigned after 18 years in the company. Venkant, as is commonly known, will remain in his current position up until the end of August. He'll join India's diversified miner Vendata Resources as its new CEO, Hilda Kasa, reports. Venkata Krishna has been praised for overseeing the extensive restructuring of the company's assets particularly those in South Africa where the company has a single underground mine entailing retreatment operation. Anglo Gold operates one of the deepest gold mines in the world. Hilda Gasser, SABC News, Johannesburg. And the South African Revenue Service, uh, along with uh, the National Prosecuting Authority, is on a mission to prosecute non-compliant taxpayers and recover tens of thousands of U.S. dollars. South says among those targeted will include prominent South Africans who have failed to, sub- to submit their returns. South's acting spokesperson, Stelum Kosi. Non-submission of tax returns, non-compliance with tax laws, is in fact a criminal offense and these um, and and we want to send a very strong message that um, it is important that uh, people adhere to their statutory duties when it comes to uh, tax uh, compliance so basically anyone who has been failing to submit the return and who has been um, failing to honor their tax obligations will be prosecuted Libya's Presidency Council's Minister of Finance and the Libyan Foreign Bank are considering various ways uh, that the North African country can recover faltering loans to African countries. A meeting last week discussed and reviewed the financial and legal status of a number of loans granted by the Libyan state to a number of African states. A joint Ministry of Finance, LFB, committee was also formed and empowered to coordinate with other relevant state sectors to intensify efforts to encourage data African states to repay their outstanding Libyan loans. And in Algeria, the country expects its economy to improve this year as revenue from OPEC members' oil and natural gas exports picks up after failing by half since 2014. Oil and natural gas exports increased by 25% to 7.1 billion US dollars in the first two months of the year, up from 5.67 billion dollars in the same period a year earlier. Algeria is a major gas supplier to Europe and relies heavily on revenue from energy exports. They account for 95% of its total exports and 60% of the state budget. 
Then to Egypt, where the country also aims to raise revenues from taxes imposed on tobacco by 402 million US dollars in the 2018-2019 draft budget. The North African country is targeting around $3.33 billion in revenues from tobacco taxes. The government is expecting revenues of $2.93 billion from tobacco taxes this financial year, which ends in June. Egypt has been increasing taxes and cutting subsidies to narrow its budget deficit as part of economic reforms tied to a $12 billion IMF program aimed at boosting the economy. To South Africa now, Public Enterprise Minister Pravin Godan says he would like the newly appointed Board of Arms Manufacturer, Dinal, to fast-track its investigation into the awarding of more than a $100,000 bursary to Northwest Province Premier Supra Mahumapila's son. In a copy of the contract of the bursary, Dinal undertakes to pay for Mahumapila's son's flights, accommodation, meals and laundry. Lucas Motibedi reports. In a statement sent out by Godan spokesperson Aldrin Lekei, the minister has immediately instructed the board to prioritize investigations into the term. The statement says the minister wants to determine whether processes were manipulated or abused to score Mahumapelo's son this lucrative bazarim to study as a pilot. The application for this bazari was submitted late with no attached metric result or witnesses' signatures. Raising the eye feather was the approval of the bazari two months after the cut-off date signed by Daniel CEO himself. Mahuma Pilu or his office are yet to reply on this matter. Looking now at your financial indicators, the US dollar is at 9.48 Botswana Pula and 9.5 Zambian Kwacha. That is the dollar against the Sadek currencies. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar is at 3.42 Brazilian Rayao at 6.207 Russian Ruble at 6.501 Indian Rupee and at 6.27 Chinese Yuan and at 12.05 South African Rands. European currencies, the dollar is at 70 pence to the British pound, 81 cents against the euro. Then to commodities, gold trading at $1,347, platinum at $929 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil is at $71.83 per barrel. And that's your economics news. Thank you very much, Usani. It is now time for sports news. Here is Mosibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans. Kenya won a total of 17 medals, finishing in 14th position on the medals table at the just-concluded Commonwealth Games in the Gold Coast, Australia, comprising of four gold, seven silver, as well as six bronze medals. The bigger contingent of Team Kenya from Australia landed home this morning, led by Captain Elijah Managwe, one of the gold medalists, after a superb display in the men's 1,500-meter event. Here is he, um, here he is um, uh, reflecting on his performance at the Gold Coast. Well, uh, I didn't take it uh, easily. You know, it's a championship, so I have uh, managed to come home with the gold. Uh, the beginning of the season, I was focusing with this event, which is a uh, Commonwealth Games. 
in Gold Coast. So I'm really happy I came home with a gold. I'm now the Commonwealth champion. And that's what I want. Uh, now I'm going to focus with some other races, which is uh, maybe Doha and Eugene. Back home, the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee will pay out nearly 1.5 million rand to the medal winners and their coaches at the, after the recently concluded Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast, Australia. Now, prior to the spectacle, Saskok promised Team South African squad monetary incentives with gold, silver and bronze medal winners pocketing 55,000 rand, 25,000 rand as well as 15,000 rand respectively. The coaches of those athletes or teams would also in turn receive 12,000 1,500 rand, 7,500 rand, as well as 5,000 rand respectively. Now, when proceedings wrapped up on Sunday, Team South Africa had finished in sixth position on the medals tables with a total of 13 golds, 11 silvers, as well as 13 bronze medals. Now, South Africa won medals in the following sporting coats, athletics, swimming, bowls, cycling, wrestling, triathlon, as well as weightlifting. On to football news, Kenya can still qualify for the semi-finals of the Sakafa Under-17 Championships in Burundi should the boys overpower Ethiopia in their second Group A matcher taking place in Gitaka, Burundi on Tuesday afternoon. Now, Kenya outshined the host Burundi 4-0 in the opening match. A win will guarantee Kenya's Under-17 team a place in the last four, even though they still have to play Somalia in their final group game on Friday at the Mayanga Stadium in northern Burundi. Now, the eight participating sides are pulled in two groups um, of um, A and B, with Kenya, Ethiopia, Somalia and Burundi forming Pool A and defending champions Uganda, Rwanda, Zanzibar, Tanzania and Sudan all in Pool B. And finally, in tennis news, Rafael Nadal's build-up to what he hopes to be another French Open triumph begins in earnest this week when the Spaniard returns to one of his favorite all-hunts, which is the uh, Monte Carlo tournament. Now, 12 months ago in Monte Carlo, Nadal became the first player to win the same ATB tournament 10 times. He followed that up with a 10th Barcelona title, as well as then landed his 10th title at the French Open. For me, it's the same every year. No, I came here every year with the same uh, passion, with the same motivation to play my best and to give me chances to have the best result possible. No, so um, especially this year, I didn't finish uh, no one event yet. So uh, hopefully, this one going to be the first. <laughs> In all the tournaments that I'm going to play during the next uh, month and a half, uh, I had a lot of success. Tournaments that are part of the history of our sport. So uh, for me, this this part of the season is unique and uh, so so special. No, so. The only thing that I ask is to be healthy, to, to play with, with, with good shape. It's a little bit different for me, you know. Unbelievable memories of every, every tournament. And uh, I know I don't want to play these events forever. So I try to enjoy every chance, every, every chance that I have, the possibility to keep playing. The Zoya Sports News at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest.
It is 1754 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Let's recap our top stories. Cuban president to step down this week. The passing of Winnie Madigizela Mandela puts the legacy of the anti-apartheid struggle in the dock. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumelele Zondi, producer, Luanda Maoma, technical producer, Dumelo Mokwena, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. You can find us on email. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. On Twitter, it is Channel Africa One. You can also WhatsApp us. Plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven plus two seven seven six three hundred double three two seven. We leave you with a please, Mr. Bai Shekina.
la ndira nimoni inunonse onvera kulikonse kumwe mkutimva ndawi no imene ifachi nyanja